0: Section 99, the magical iPad. Last time there was this much excitement about a tablet, it had some commandments written on it. A chuckling Steve Jobs, quoting the Wall Street Journal's Martin Peers, December 30, 2009. The launch of an innovative new product is always exciting. The launch of an innovative new product from a competitor is even more exciting. But what is it like when your main competitor launches an innovative new product at a moment of your own fundamental strategic weakness? That's what it was like when the iPad was launched on January 27, 2010. On the heels of the successful Windows 7 launch, during a time when Microsoft was behind on mobile and all things internet, and in the midst of planning Windows 8, Apple launched the iPad. Many would view the iPad, along with slates and tablets, as consumption devices. Steve Jobs and the glowing press that followed the launch viewed the iPad as a fundamental improvement in computing. Whatever your view, It was a huge deal. For months, Bill G and a small group of Microsoft executives believed Apple was going to release a tablet computer. It had been rumored for more than a decade. Originally, tablet-shaped computers traced their roots to the legendary Alan Kay's 1960s Dynabook. Plus, there was that one on Star Trek. And there's a long-held belief among Trekkers that all Star Trek tech will eventually be realized. By 2010, Microsoft had a decade plus of tablet PC experience, mixed as it was. With Windows 7, we brought all the tablet features into the main product instead of a special SKU, so every version of Windows could run effectively on any PC with tablet hardware, such as a pen and touchscreen. What was different about the Apple rumors in 2010? What made, it, made us more nervous? Why this time did we believe the rumors about a company for which predictions had always been wrong? No one had predicted the iPhone with any specificity. The online version has some images of the Book and Star Trek. Microsoft and partners had invested a huge amount of time, energy, and innovation capital in the tablet PC, but it was not breaking through the way many had hoped, such as how we visualized it in the Office Center for Information work. The devices for sale were expensive, heavy, underpowered, had relatively poor battery life, inconsistent quality, And beyond the built-in applications of OneNote from Office and a few industry-specific applications pushed through by Microsoft's evangelism efforts, there was little software that leveraged the pen and tablet. Many, myself included, were decreasingly enthused. Bill G, however, was tireless in his advocacy of the device and the fact that Apple might make one, whatever magic Steve Jobs could muster upon it, only served to juice the competition between companies and founder CEOs. Bill G remained hardcore and optimistic about the pen for productivity and a keyboardless device for on-screen reading and annotation. To Bill G, a PC running Windows that was shaped like a slate or tablet seemed inevitable. For many of the boomer computer science era, the fascination of handwriting and computing on a slate had been a part of the narrative from the start. Over the past 30 years, though, few of the technical problems had been solved, particularly handwriting, But also battery life and weight. Then came the iPhone with multi-touch. That Apple would build such a PC was only more credible than ever because of their phone, though by Microsoft measures the iPhone still lacked a stylus for pen input, something Steve Jobs openly mocked on several occasions. The possibility made us all nervous and anxious, especially knowing Windows 8 was underway. Collectively, and without hesitation, many believed Apple would turn the Mac into a tablet. Apple would simply add a pen and touch support to the Mac software, creating a business computer with all the capabilities in Office and other third-party software, and, and along with the power of tablet computing. The thinking was that a convertible device made a ton of sense since that allowed for productivity and consumption in one device. Plus, techies love the convertible devices of all kinds it was exactly what Microsoft would have done. There were senior executives at Microsoft with very close ties to Apple who were certain of Apple's plans and relayed those to Bill. Bill would almost gleefully share what he knew to be the case, using such g G2 to prod groups into seeing the opportunity for his much loved tablet strategy. There were debates consuming online forums. Rumors rooted in the Asian supply chain data as to what sorts of screens and chips might Apple might be purchasing for the rumored product. Some thought there would be a big iPod, and still others thought Apple would develop a product tailored to books, like the two-year-old Amazon Kindle. In other words, no one had a clue, and people were just making stuff up. Some were even calling it the iPad, not because there was a leak or anything, but because it made more sense than iTablet or iSlate because at one point in the 1990s, Microsoft did something in R&D called a WinPad. The industry had not even settled on nomenclature for the form factor, cycling among tablet, slate, pad, mid, convertible, and so on. The online version has some screen images of tablet rumors from the time. At least in the months prior to launch, zero people, to my knowledge, thought that Apple had in mind a completely novel approach. An aspect of disruptive innovation is how concum- incumbents project their views of strategy onto competitors without fully considering the context in which competitors work. As much as Microsoft primarily considered Apple to be a Mac company that happened to stumble into music players and then phones, by 2010, Apple had already pinned its future and entire product development efforts on iPhone and what was still called iPhone OS which was based on OS X, the Mac OS, but modernized in significant ways. On January 27, 2010, at a special press event billed as Come See Our Latest Creation, Steve Jobs unveiled the iPad. I followed the happenings on live blogs. This is one of the first Apple special events used to launch products, as the previous 2009 Macworld was the last one in which Apple participated. The event took place starting with a reminder that Apple had become the world's largest mobile device company, followed by Steve Jobs quoting with a bit of a chuckle an article from December in the Wall Street Journal. The last time there was this much excitement about a tablet, it had some commandments written on it. The online version has several slides from that event, including this previous quote. As part of the buildup to introducing the iPad, Jobs pointed out that in defining a new category, A tablet needed to be better at some important things, better than a phone or better than a laptop. It needed to be better at browsing, email, photos, video, music, games, and eBooks. Basically everything other than office and professional software it seemed to me. Though this would come to be known as creation or productivity by detractors who would posit that the iPad was a consumption device. As we will see, the Microsoft Office team was already hard at work bringing Office apps to the iPad. The launch event deliberately touted latest creation in the invitations, which I always thought was a bow to creativity as a key function. What many pundits, and especially techies, failed to appreciate was that productivity and creativity had new, broader definitions with the breadth of usage of computers as smartphones. Productivity and creativity were no longer the sole province of Word, Excel, Photoshop, and Visual Studio. The most used applications for creating was email and was already a natural on the iPhone, only soon to be replaced by messaging that was even more natural. As the presentation continued, Jobs delivered his first gut punch to the PC ecosystem, describing what such a device might be as he set up a contrast for what the new category should do relative to netbooks. Quoting, Some people have thought that a netbook would be the device. The audience joined in a round of laughter. Then he said, the problem is netbooks aren't better at anything. They're slow. They have low quality displays and they run clunky old PC software. They're just cheap laptops. More laughter. Ouch. He was slamming the darling of the PC industry at hard. The real problem was not only that he was right, but that consumers had come to that same conclusion. Sales of netbooks had already begun their plunge to rounding error. Jobs unveiled the iPad proudly. Sitting in a Le Corbusier chair, he showed the extraordinary things his new device did, from browsing to email to photos and videos and more. The real kicker was that it achieved 10 hours of battery life, a flight from San Francisco to Tokyo watching video on one charge, and could be recharged using your iPhone cable. It also achieved more than 30 days of standby power, and like a phone, it also remained connected to the network in standby, reliably downloading emails and receiving notifications. This type of battery management was something the PC architecture struggled endlessly to achieve. The introduction concluded with a series of guests showing specially designed iPad apps in the 18 months old App Store, now with over 140,000 apps. The online version has a photo of Steve Jobs in the chair. The ebook specific apps really got under our skin, given how much this had been the focus of many efforts over many years. Being a voracious reader, Bill G championed ebooks for the longest time. Teams developed formats and evangelized the concept to publishers. Still, Microsoft lacked a device to comfortably read books. Then there was Steve Jobs reclined in an iconic chair. Games were the icing on the cake of despair, given Microsoft's efforts on both Xbox and PC. But there was no pen, no stylus. Surely it was doomed to be a consumption device. Then they showed a paint program that could be used with the touch of a finger. They were just getting started. There was no productivity, still doomed for sure. Then they showed updated versions of the iWork suite for iPad. The word processor, spreadsheet, and presentations package for the Mac had been rewritten and tuned specifically to work with touch on the iPad. Apple even intended to charge for these apps, though that would later change. These tools had already been stomped by Microsoft Office, but they became unique on this unique device. The ever-increasing quality of the tools, particularly keynote for presentations, quietly became a favorite among the Mac set in Silicon Valley. All these apps being shown were available in the App Store. They were curated and vetted by Apple, free from viruses, bad behavior, and battery draining features. Rounding out the demonstration was the fact that the iPad synchronized all the settings, documents, and content purchased with iTunes with the cloud service. This was still early in Apple's confused journey to what became known as iCloud, but as anyone who tried to sync between a phone and a PC then learned that it worked at all was an achievement. The iPad also came with an optional cellular modem built in. On a PC, one would need a USB dongle costing a couple hundred dollars and an elaborate software stack that hardly worked, plus a monthly $60 fee. On the iPad, there was an unlimited plan for $29.99 Apple and AT&T also made it possible to activate the iPad without going to the store or even calling AT&T. Minor, perhaps, but this is the kind of industry-moving innovation Apple almost never gets credit for achieving, what was impossible to do uniformly on a PC. Even today, mobile connectivity on a PC is at best a headache. The pricing was also innovative. Apple had previously been called out as a high-priced technology vendor for a lack of an appropriate low-priced product response to netbooks. There was no doubt the iPad would be portrayed as expensive. In fact, after drawing out sharing the price, Job announced it would start at $499, a shockingly low price point which was close enough to netbook territory. The price went to $829 fully loaded with storage and 3G, which remained the same for as many loaded netbooks. The price was hardly OLPC, but it was low, with $499 viewed as a magic price point at retail. The product would be available in all configurations in 90 days worldwide. I promptly ordered mine. I also ordered the keyboard dock described below. It was also painful. Each time Judd said magical, I thought painful. There were so many things the iPad hardware did that PC hardware could not do, or had been trying or, and failing to do for so long that suddenly made all the difference. Incredibly thin and light, all day battery life, wonderful display, low latency touchscreen, 3G connectivity, multiple sensors, cameras, synchronizing settings and cloud storage, an app store, and so much more. My favorite mind-blowing example, was the ability to easily rotate the screen from portrait to landscape without any user interface action. It just happened naturally. At a meeting with Intel, the head of mobile products took out an iPad and spun it in the air, yelling at me with his thick Israeli accent. When will Windows be able to rotate the screen like this? My head hurt. All of this made possible because the iPad built on the iPhone. Yes, that was a big phone, but it proved to be so much more. It had so much potential because of the software. It also had productivity software. And to finally rub in the point, the first iPad even had a desktop docking station with a keyboard attached. Jobs didn't need to address the complexity of adding a keyboard, but having a keyboard that actually worked without the touchscreen keyboard popping up and getting in the way was an important technical breakthrough, and also one rooted in using the iPhone adapted OS 10 operating system kernel while also using a new platform for application software. This is one of many subtle points we picked up on that showed the foresight of the underlying strategy. It was obvious the keyboard dock was an objection handler and not a serious effort, but it motivated an ecosystem of keyboard folios and cases for the iPad until Apple itself finally introduced innovative keyboard covers. The conclusion of the presentation reminded everyone that 75 million buyers of iPhones and touch iPods already knew how to use the iPad. There was no doubt that the moment, that at that moment that the future of the portable computer for home or work was an iPad or iPad-like device. The only questions were how long it would take that to happen and how much Windows could thrive on simply supporting legacy behavior. It was, as Jobs said, the most advanced technology in a magical and revolutionary device At an unbelievable price the online version has some photos of my version of that docking station the international magazine coverage of the ipad launch was mind-blowing it was pure steve jobs the genius the economist cover featured steve jobs as a messiah-like character with a biblical text over his head the book of jobs hope hype and apple's ipad as he held the ipad tablet not unlike moses Time, Newsweek, Wired had just about every tech publication that's still printed on paper did a cover story. The global coverage squarely landed the message that the iPad was the future of computing. The online version has some of those magazine covers. From the PC tech press, the announcement drew skepticism. The iPad was m- marginally more expensive than dying netbooks. It lacked a full-size keyboard for proper productivity. It didn't have a convenient USB slot to transfer photos or files. That was the most common way of sharing files at the time. The use of adjectives like full or proper or efficient peppered the reviews when talking about productivity. This was all strikingly familiar as it sounded just like the kind of feedback the MacBook Air received from these very same people. There was endless and tiresome commentary on how we could not have true productivity without a mouse, a desktop, and overlapping windows, generously called multitasking, which is technically a misnomer. The irony was always lost on the person commenting. There was a time when the PC did not have a mouse. In fact, the introduction of the mouse was viewed as a gimmick or a toy entirely counter to productivity, or the fact for most of the history of Windows, the vast majority of users ran with one application visible at a time, just like on the iPad. I collected a series of articles from the 1980s criticizing the mouse. Fast forward to 2010, replace the mouse with touch, and read these exactly the same. It was as if we had not spent the past three years debating whether or not one could use a smartphone with only a touch screen. The online version has some of those articles from the 1980s about the mouse. Also, there were no files. How could one be productive without files? The iPad turned apps using a cloud into the primary way to create and share, not files and attachments. Apple would later add a Files app, but kids today have no idea what files are. When they weren't making fun of the name iPad, many were quick to mock the whole concept of an iPad as simply a puffed-up iPhone. Ironically, the mid-2010 iPhone still had only a tiny 3.5-inch screen. It would not be until late 2014 when Apple would relent and introduce a larger iPhone and a year later would introduce a 12.9-inch iPad. Apple in no way saw the iPad as simply a larger iPhone. Walt Mossberg said a different tone in his review. Laptop killer? Pretty close. iPad is a game-changer that makes browsing and video a pleasure. Challenge to the mouse. Among the positive commentary Mossberg said of the iPad Pages word processor, This is a serious content creation app that should help the iPad compete with laptops and can import Microsoft Office files. And as I got deeper into it, I found the iPad a pleasure to use and had less and less interest in cracking open my heavier ThinkPad or MacBook. I probably use the laptops about 20% as often as normal. He concluded with a reminder that this was going to be a difficult journey. Quote, Only time will tell if it's a real challenger to the laptop and netbook. The online version has some of the Mossberg review as it appeared in print. Apple sold about 20 million iPads in the first year while we were building Windows 8, during the half year from 2010 to 2011. As it would happen, 2011 was the all-time high watermark, through this writing, for PC sales at 365 million units, or about 180 to 200 million laptops, The resulting iPad sales were not a blip or a fad in the portable computing world. 10% of worldwide laptop sales in the first year? In contrast, netbook sales fell off a cliff and all but vanished as quickly as they appeared. Each quarterly PC sales report was skittish as sales growth was slowing. At, At first, the blame was put on the economy or maybe it was a shortage of hard drives or lack of excitement for Windows 8 or even impact from the iPad. It would be a while before the PC industry absorbed the impact of phones and tablets and later Google Chromebooks. There was a brief respite during the first year of the global pandemic and work from home, but that too quickly subsided. It is expected that 2022 PC sales, including Google Chromebooks, will be about 300 million units. The iPhone and iPad were arguably the most existential challenges Microsoft ever faced. While the industry focus and Apple's business were on devices, the risk came from the redefinition of operating system capabilities and software development and distribution. Apple had created a complete platform and ecosystem for a new and larger market. This platform came not at a time of great strength for Microsoft, but at a time when we were on our heels strategically, fighting for our relevancy. The Windows platform had been overrun by the browser, including a recent entry from Google that would soon eclipse Internet Explorer as well as the recently announced Chrome OS. PCOMs were in rough shape financially and had an uncertain future. Windows Server, as well as it had been doing, had failed to achieve leadership beyond the large enterprise market. Linux and open source dominated the public internet. Amazon web services and cloud computing consumed the energies of academia and startups. Windows Phone 7 had not yet shipped and Windows Phone 6.5 was being trounced by Apple from above and Android from below. Even hits from Xbox to SQL Server were not actually winning in their category, but were a distant second place. If ever it was the best of times, it was the worst of times applied to a company, the summer of 2010 was it for Microsoft. When it came to financial success, Microsoft was in a fantastic position, but strategically and in thought leadership, we were in a weak position. Perhaps Microsoft could have made better bets earlier and we squandered what could have been a potential lead In October 2011, almost two years since the iPad was available, I received an email from a corporate vice president of public relations. He relayed a message from a reporter asking about an unreleased Microsoft tablet with the code named Courier. The reporter wanted to know, why did Sanofsky kill it? According to the reporter, the Courier project had been going on since before the iPad was released. This is important. And it was only just now... 18 months after the iPad was available, it became clear that Sanofsky killed it. Oh no, they found out, I thought. Crap. The problem was that I had never seen this project. I would hardly heard of it, other than rumors of just another random project in E&D operating under the radar that had been canceled more than a year earlier. There was a small story in Gizmodo's tech blog where the project, which was Design Sketch Prototype, was canceled shortly after the iPad announcement in April 2010. Microsoft cancels innovative Courier tablet project. Quoting from the story, It is a pity. Courier was one of the most innovative concepts out of Redmond in some time. But what we loved about Courier was the interface and the thinking behind it, not necessarily its custom operating system. Courier was developed in E&D, the Entertainment and Devices Division, where Xbox and Zune were developed. It was, apparently a design for a dual screen pen based tablet. A conceptual video rendering of the device leaked and the internet went wild. It looked to be the dream device to techies. It had two screens and folded like a book. As fascinating as it was, all anyone, myself included as far as I knew, had to judge it by was an animation. The first time I saw the animation was on the internet just before the project was canceled. That video leaked by whom, I'm still not sure, two months prior to the iPad announcement, during the height of tablet rumors, even before the CES show with Windows 7 tablets and early Android tablets. Gizmodo, who above praised it as one of the most innovative concepts coming out of Redmond, described the Courier interface relative to their favorite interpretation, or what everyone expects, of the iPad tablet rumors. The courier user experience presented here is almost the exact opposite of what everyone expects the Apple tablet to be, a kung fu claw to Apple's tiger style. It's complex, two screens, a mashup of a pen dominated interface with several types of multi-touch finger gestures and multiple graphically complex themes, modes and applications. Our favorite UI bit, the hinge doubles as a pocket to hold items you want to move from one page to another. Microsoft's tablet heritage is digital ink oriented, and the interface, while unlike anything we've seen before, clearly draws that from its work with the Surface Touch computer, the desktop described earlier, and even the Zune HD. In hindsight, one just knows that Apple got a huge kick out of this device and the quasi-strategic leak from the team. The online version has an image of that animation. More importantly, I had to pick up the pieces with PC OEMs who read the articles about this device and wondered if Microsoft was competing with them or undercutting their own efforts at new Windows 7 tablets. In the lead up to the first CES with Windows 7 and our work on touch and tablets trying to generate support across the ecosystem, this kind of leak was devastating. Aside from the appearance of hiding important details from partners, it looked like one part of Microsoft was competing with our largest customers or worse, that the Windows team was part of the duplicity. In his CES 2010 keynote, Steve B. had to call out and bring special visibility to a new tablet from HP just to smooth over the relationship due to the Courier leak months earlier. There was nonstop scrambling from the time of the Gizmodo leak until he stepped off stage. HP, as the largest OEM was and remains, directly responsible for billions in Windows revenue and thus profit. Months later, HP bought Palm and its webOS software for $1.2 billion, with every intent of creating a tablet with its own operating system. It would not be unreasonable to conclude that HP pursued Palm because of the Courier project, even with the history of OS development at HP. Our OEM partners thought we were just bad partners. The online version has a photo from CES of Steve Ballmer with the HP project. The group of Microsoft influencers on the internal email discussion group Lightbulb described earlier thought we were foolish for canceling what would certainly have been the next killer device. One person said on a long discussion thread contrasting Courier with money losing Bing and Xbox, in my view, our apparent unwillingness to lose money on a few innovative, sexy products that people drool over is part of the reason we are losing the public perception battle to Apple and Google. The online version has a screenshot of some of the light bulb emails about Courier. Courier became a shorthand or a meme for incompetent management at Microsoft. Given the climate around the company and a decade of relatively flat stock price, such internal discussions contributed to a growing narrative of the death of innovation at Microsoft. My own team mostly thought I was foolish for not even knowing of the existence of Courier. I looked unaware or dumb or both along with all the powers at Microsoft that had stifled innovation. We thought this story was over, and then more than two years after the leak, we received the inbound indicating I was the culprit and the reporter awaited comment. When the video of the leak first surfaced, I sent an email trying to understand if the Courier project was related to Windows 7. Was it for sale? What version of Windows 7 was it running? Did OEMs know? I became concerned that there was a modified source code tree of Windows 7 floating around, and how would that be released and supported? Was this another tablet PC or media center code fork and potential mess? I was told it would run Windows 7, but heavily modified. Xbox was originally the Windows source code, so now knowing the team, I became concerned that that playbook would be used. We had just cleaned all this up with the release of Windows 7, but this new situation could turn into a real mess. We spent two years on Windows source code and sustaining engineering hygiene, so this better not take us back from where we came. I opined, it was messy, but it turned out the budgeting and management processes within e and itself led to the demise of Courier and had nothing to do with the concerns I raised after the fact. My reaction was just to tell the reporter we would go on record that I did not have any role in, quote, murdering the Courier project and had no knowledge of it until I saw the leaked video. I said as much in email to the communications team. There was no shaking the reporter who was certain of his sources and simply concluded this was some sort of misdirection from me and Microsoft, whatever. A decade later, whenever a dual screen device shows up in the market, the Windows fans return to Courier and remark what could have been. And that acts like an SEO, search engine optimization, effort to join my name with killing innovation. We look bad from every direction internal innovation watchdogs, OEM partners, and executive staff lacking a coherent strategy, and most of all within our own Windows team. The innovation or lack thereof narrative at Microsoft was dutifully fed by canceling this project, which given our experience with Windows 7 would of course not have been successful. There were so many problems. The entire experience shows the problem with demos, leaks, press sources, and what it's like to try to do or not do new things in the context of a broader narrative. It's a decade since Courier was canceled and people still hope to bring back this project and many still see it as symbolic of the company's tendency to stifle innovative projects. Surface released the Microsoft Surface Duo device, running a modified Google Android as a somewhat puzzling approach. Courier routinely shows up on lists of innovative projects killed by mismanaged companies. There is some irony in that latter view, given Microsoft's penchant for continuing to develop and pursue products long after they fail to achieve critical mass, well beyond the requisite three versions. The online version has a screenshot of this recent Surface Duo. The debates within the team about iPad were definitely there. Would it replace or augment a laptop? Was it a substitute for a PC and users continue to do what they did on a PC? Or would people use it as an alternative to do new things in new ways? Would developers build apps specific for the larger iPad screen? Would it ultimately be limited to consumption as many predicted or become a creative and productive tool? Would third-party developers optimize apps for the iPad? Would PC OEMs make a good tablet with the software we would design or not? This last question was critical. Amazingly, these debates can continue today, even with something like a half a billion active iPads. The convergence of today's Apple, Silicon Mac, and iPad make the debate either more interesting or exceedingly moot. Back in the realm of what the team could control and execute, we began planning Windows 8 in the fall of 2009. We saw the disappointments at the Consumer Electronics Show, followed by the surprise of the iPad announcement. Our plans came together in the spring of 2010. For the new Windows team, it was a magical planning effort.